Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, great to be with you all this morning. We are continuing through our series in our series through uh, Isaiah and the prophets. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 5, verse 1, and we will pick up there in a moment. If you've been with us for the last four weeks, you know that we started the series by talking about prophets and prophecy. Uh, What is a prophet? What did it mean to uh, prophesy? How do uh, Old Testament uh, prophets and uh, prophecy compare to New Testament prophets and prophecy? And uh, we discussed the fact that in the Old Testament, a prophet was a man or a woman Uh, called and anointed by God for the purpose of being God's mouthpiece to a group of people or often to an entire nation of people. Um, They were, their job was to speak God's words in God's timing. And um, the, the message that they spoke throughout the Old Testament is actually a fairly consistent one. And their message to Israel uh, focused on two main themes. So much of the Old Testament is uh, books from the prophets, uh, full of their words that they spoke to the nation of Israel. And they all center around two main themes, and that's judgment on the nation of Israel and hope for the people of Israel. And thus, the the first half of our series through Isaiah and the prophets has been focusing on that message of judgment. And the second half will focus on the hope that they proclaimed to the people that they spoke to. Uh, And the reason that they pronounced judgment on the nation of Israel is that the nation of Israel had broken their covenant with God. Uh, They'd embraced idolatry and the worship of false gods. Uh, the gods of the cultures around them. And, and they embraced actually the injustice that flowed from the worship uh, of false gods. And so uh, Matt Karsh uh, last week, hey, what you, what you worship actually shapes you. So when you worship something other than God, there's going to be injustices that actually flow naturally out of that, out of what you worship. And for some reason, every time I put this mic on it, it, it messes up. I think I'll switch. Um, okay awesome uh what was i saying judgment and hope um so the nation of israel had broken their covenant with god they'd embraced idolatry um, they'd embraced the injustice that flowed from that and so um the the call of the prophets wasn't simply oh judgment's already coming um, just get ready to embrace it. Their, their call of the prophets was actually loaded with invitation. It was loaded with this invitation to repent. That's, that's how you boil their invitation down to one single word. They said, repent. Turn from the worship of false gods. Turn from the worship of self. Turn from the worship of whatever else back to the worship of the Creator God. Remember your covenant with Him. Remember the love that He has for you. Remember the justice that should flow to your neighbors because of your intimacy with God. Uh, Over and over again, they would call them to this uh, repentance. And during the few instances throughout, the Old Testament covers, uh, well, thousands and thousands of years, but really the prophets cover a number of centuries. And throughout those centuries, there was constantly this call, and in very few instances, did Israel kind of respond corporately with any act of repentance? When they did turn from their darkness toward the light, God would bring forgiveness, He would bring renewal, even revival for the nation of Israel. But for the most part, the story of Israel is characterized by unrepentance, by a hardened heart. And so instead of blessing and revival and renewal, they face exile. We pick up in Isaiah chapter 5. These are God's words for his people. 
I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and the people of Judah, judge between me, God saying, and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge or its protection from around it, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A 10-acre vineyard will produce only a a bath of of wine, a homer of seed will yield only an ephah of, of grain. Woe to you who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, pay attention here, my people will go into exile for their lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger and the common people will be parched with thirst. Let's pray. Jesus, as we um, just take on a tough topic within the scriptures, a, a, a tough, actually the toughest moment in the entire experience of Israel as a nation through the centuries. Uh, God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning and that we would have an increasingly clear picture uh, of the beauty of your heart, of your majesty, of your glory, uh, of the one who calls us to himself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The nation of Israel had rebelled against God. They refused to listen to the prophets, and now the prophets are saying, exile is coming. They will be removed from the land and taken into captivity. But far from being a random punishment for their sin, exile actually becomes a theme that permeates Scripture from start to finish. And stick with me for a moment, because that concept might be unfamiliar to a lot of you. But I believe that exile is a lens through which we can view all of Scripture. If you flip, and you don't have to, but if you were to flip all the way back to the beginning of your Bibles, the first couple pages, God creates the first human beings, Adam and Eve. And they are placed in what's called in Hebrew, uh, ha'eretz, or or the land, which God has formed into the Garden of Eden. And they're free there to enjoy God, to enjoy one another, to enjoy the good land that he's placed them in. Uh, But all they have to do is obey this one command that God has given them. And, and everything else, hey, enjoy me, enjoy the tree of life, which keeps death at bay, enjoy one another, enjoy the land, the one thing I want you to do. And those of you who know the story know that Adam and Eve disobey God. They rebel against him. They, they attempt to become their own gods to seize autonomy for themselves. And as a result of rebelling against him, they are cast out of the land. And they are cast out to the east, 
Uh, they're, they're cast out of the land. They're unable to go back into the Garden of Eden. And from there, humanity begins to spread to the east, and they settle by chapter 11 in a place called Babel. They build what's called the Tower of Babel. They're still um, in, in disobedience against God. But I want us uh, to, to, to start with that picture of Adam and Eve in hot Eretz in the land, cast out to the east, and, and they're shut out of, uh, away from the tree of life, which, which kept death at bay. They're, they're, they're cast out of God's manifest presence. There's a sense in which God is, is, permeates the universe everywhere at all times, and, and there's a sense in which there's a manifest presence of God in, in, in a location. They're cast out of the manifest presence of God, out of the glory of God, and they're head to Babel. Then, in light of this, God is making, starts making a series of promises, and he says uh, to Eve that one of her descendants... Uh, will one day be born from her line. Well, we're all from her line, but stick with me. Uh, a descendant of Eve will come who will one day crush the head of the serpent who represents Satan, the great enemy of God and humanity. And he's saying, hey, you, humanity has just stepped into this war and they've just taken the wrong side. And from here forward, it's, it's going to be wild. You are going to be caught in the middle of this war zone. But one day, a descendant of Eve will come who will be a, a snake crusher, so to speak. He will come, and he will crush the very source of evil in the world. He will end the war that humanity has just been caught up in. And, and so from the early pages of scriptures forward, uh, we're looking for this, uh, this person this uh, snake crusher who will end the war and allow humanity to come back into the manifest presence of God, uh, back into the land and, and this place of favor, back into a place where they have access once more to, to eternal life. And so that's one of the themes or things that we're looking for uh, throughout all of Scripture. But as you move forward, now you have this humanity that, that's kind of warped, uh, it's embracing evil, rejecting God, building this tower in Babel. And the very next thing you read in the scriptures uh, is God calling a man named Abram, later Abraham, to come and follow him. And it's really interesting if you pay attention in the text. He actually calls him from the east, from the land that would have been Babel. And he says, now I'm calling you from the east back to Ha'eretz in Hebrew, back to the land that you will inherit. And, and many scholars believe that, that Ha'eretz from Genesis is exactly the same all the way through, meaning that it, it was the place that the Garden of Eden was. So now he's calling him out of this place of exile in a foreign land, hey, come back to the land that you will inherit out of Babel and to the promised land. And God gives uh, promises uh, to, uh, to Abraham and his descendants. That's Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Hey, you will inherit this. And then you start into the Israel story. And that kind of dominates the rest of the Old Testament. We're following Abraham's descendants to see what happens. And so God frees them from slavery in Egypt. And he brings them up to Ha'eretz to the land, to this land that's flowing with milk and honey, that has the blessing of God on it. And there, once again, they were to enjoy the unique blessing and the unique presence of God. In fact, his manifest presence, his glory, came into the tabernacle and later the temple. He wanted to be there in glory with his people in this, this land that same plot of land. And, and so he says, hey, stay here. Enjoy this amazing land. Enjoy me. Enjoy my blessing. Enjoy one another. Enjoy my manifest presence. All I ask is that you walk with me in faithfulness. Keep my covenant. You could boil it down to two commands. Just love me and love other people. Just, just do this thing and you can stay in this place. Were they successful in that? No. This is, the, this is the agony of reading the Old Testament. 
is that they're not successful in that. In fact, they're very, very bad at it. And so one prophet after the next, 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 fails to call Israel back into covenant faithfulness. And so eventually what happens is that just like Adam and Eve, they will be ejected from the land to the east. And that uh, place to the east that was once called Babel now goes by a different name, Babylon. This is the story of the exile. And so in the year of 586 B.C., after centuries of idolatry and injustice and refusing to repent, finally, just as God promised through the prophets, judgment came. And by now, um, because of their own sin, the the nation of Israel is fractured in two. Uh, There's a northern kingdom that has already been dragged into exile by Assyria. Uh, And then you have the southern kingdom, which is always portrayed as like the better half of the kingdom, but now Babylon is at their gate. And so in 586 BC, uh, Babylon uh, carries out the first of three invasions. They're going to come in waves over those years and begin taking people into exile. And then the third and final wave, they're going to take the most people out of any wave. They're going to completely destroy and burn down the temple of the Lord and ransack the city and go. It is, it is the end of Israel as, as a nation, as a people group at that time. And so all of a sudden, the Israelites find themselves in captivity in a foreign land with no temple, struggling to maintain identity. Wait a second, what just happened? Who are we? Where are we? I thought we were chosen by God to be a vessel through which he would bless the nations. Isn't that what he said in Abraham? And and now the gods of the Babylonians are clearly bigger than our God because we lost. This is proof. We're in chains being marched into a foreign land. That means their God's one. Who are we and what on earth are we doing in Babylon? There's this crisis of identity. and, And in this identity crisis, they actually begin to turn back to the writings of the prophets, which they had rejected before. They, they hadn't been willing to hear that voice. It sounded like bad news, so they turned it off. Now they're going back and re-examining and saying, oh my gosh, going all the way back to the first prophet Moses, he said this was going to happen, and we didn't listen. And so now they're going back and studying the words of the prophets again, and, and, the, and this is actually the time all of these books of the, of the Old Testament had been written, almost all of them, but they hadn't been compiled yet. So they're actually compiled by a people in exile, by a people coming out of exile, by the oppressed, by a minority. Those are the people who formed the Bible into the thing that it is. But not only had God uh, foretold that they would be exiled, the prophet said, hey, if you don't listen, this is where you're going. You're just like Adam and Eve. You're exiled to the east. They will march you out of this land. But God also spoke through the prophets and said, guess what? God's going to bring you back. This exile isn't forever. Your nation is not permanently erased. He will remain faithful to to his promise to Abraham that through you will come a person who will bless every nation on earth. In fact, uh, through the prophet Isaiah, who's the book that, that we're focusing on, he says this. He says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. This is, this is like decades and decades. They're not even in exile yet. And God is actually telling them how they will leave exile. He says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward. He'll do it for free. I'll move his heart, God said. So he's saying, through, through Isaiah, he's saying, hey, you're going to go into exile because you're not going to repent. And here's how you're going to get out of exile. I'm going, to, I'm going to bring you back again. After 70 years of exile in Babylon, just as God promised through Isaiah, God raises up Cyrus, king of Persia, who come and, and the Persians overtake the entire Babylonian empire 
uh, set the exiles free and, and allow them, those who want to, to go back to the land. He actually, if, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, we recently read that story. And he, he releases them. He gives them money. He gives them supplies. It's this beautiful thing. They all go back to the land. But when they get back to the land, they immediately realize that there's a sense in which they are still in exile. They rebuild the temple, for those who remember that story, and it's just a sham of a temple. I mean, it's nothing like the original temple that was there. And worse yet, the manifest presence of God does not come back to inhabit that temple like it did before exile. So they're in the land, but, but it's, not, it's not quite right. The, the kingdom isn't, isn't being reformed. The kingdom of God isn't, isn't coming on earth. There's still this cloud over everything. And in fact, for centuries after returning from exile, they're, they're in exile in their own land, which is perhaps even more disorienting. They're conquered by one foreign empire after the next. Every world empire that rises and falls for hundreds of years conquers Israel. The Persians, Alexander the Great, the Romans, they're still oppressed. The manifest presence of God is not there. The blessing isn't there. And so the people begin to realize, hey, we're back in the land, but we're still in exile. We need a new Moses. We need a new David. We need a new figure like that, an anointed one, a Messiah, who will actually lead us into a fuller expression of the kingdom of God on earth. And the prophets talked a lot about this future hope, as we'll see in the coming weeks, but I'm going to starve you of hope this morning so that you'll be excited for next week. Um, But in the meantime, we will talk about hope. But in the meantime, here's what I want us to see. When you open the scriptures, I want you to see exile. That humanity started in a garden with God, and humanity universally was exiled. All of us ended up in Babel, which is the scripture's foreshadowing of Babylon. All of us ended up east of the garden in Babylon. And we are all, every tribe, tongue, nation in in the world, all of us are waiting to come home. There's this almost universal sense among human beings everywhere that something isn't right. That, that we are incomplete. That something is missing. That we're, the earth is our home. It's the only home we know. It's, it's fine-tuned for human beings. And, and yet, it doesn't truly feel like home. There, there's this strange disconnect this, this dissonance. And in fact, if you want to get really existential, most human beings, especially in the Western world, don't feel at home in their own skin. Why is that? There's something missing. Most days, most human beings can look out the window and say, this isn't it. it. It can't be. There has to be more to life than this. And the advertising agencies will spend billions to convince you that it's their product that you're missing. Ah, oh, that's it, that's it, that's it. And the politicians will spend millions to convince you it's just their political vision. That'll solve it. Things will click into place. It's going to feel like home. The world is going to make sense. And yet, no matter who we elect, no matter what products we buy, we have that driving sense, I'm not complete yet. This isn't home. And the reason that we feel that way is that we were made 
for the garden. We were made to be in intimate relationship with God, to enjoy God and one another. We were made to experience and embody and reflect into the world the manifest presence of God. You were made to experience that. That's life as it was intended to be. But we're, we're not there yet. We, we are, humanity is, in a very real sense, in exile. And so the scriptures come to us as a story written and compiled by exiles about the exile of humanity and humanity's journey collectively back to the garden, back into eternal life and the manifest presence of God. How will humanity be reconciled to God and come back under his blessing and back under his favor and receive eternal life again? That's the tension from page two onward. That, that's what you're wrestling with. And you don't even get the full answer until the very last pages. That, that's the, what the story of the scriptures is. This is a universal human problem, human question that the Bible has set out to address. But as you press into the story of the exile, you find that there's actually another story inside of it. There's a story within the story. And so the grand story is humanity's exile from the garden and their return to the garden-like city. But then you press in and, and you realize that humanity's exile and return from exile curiously centers around Israel. Do you ever just start reading through the Old Testament and think, what? why? Like, why am I reading all of this stuff about Israel? Like, why do, why do I care? Because that's the story within the story. How is God going to get humanity out of exile? Well, somehow the answer is going to come out of Israel. Uh, in fact, I like to think of the scriptures uh, almost like one of those sets of uh, Russian uh, nesting dolls. You know what I'm talking about? Where there's like, oh, it's a doll, and you pop it open, and there's like, oh, there's something, there's another one, and you just keep going and going, and there's like dolls within dolls within dolls. Uh, and so uh, Tori here is from the Ukraine, and she let me borrow a, a, a beautifully painted little set of Russian nesting dolls, but I thought, that's a little too small. Do you have anything else? Um, and so she gave me this. Uh, this is a child's version uh, of a Russian nesting doll, okay? So stick with me. This is how I think about the scriptures. You approach the scriptures and there's a big story about humanity going into exile, about humanity coming out of exile. But as you dig into that story and you crack it open, inside you find another story. And, and this is the story of Israel. I can't take this seriously, but this, this is the story of Israel, okay? I should have stuck with the, the beautifully painted ones. Um, and, and then you realize, oh my gosh, I'm reading a story within a story, but this story is also about a group of people who are going into exile. So humanity's in exile. What's the solution? It's going to come through Israel. Now I'm reading this story, but now they're going into exile. So now, now they're like double exiled. Now, now how, how is all of this going to get resolved? Well, you have to dig into the story of Israel and, and see which story you find inside. But you, you, you end the Old Testament with this tension. Okay, I, I've encountered the big picture problem of humanity in exile. Now I've dug in, I found another story about the solution, but now these people are in exile. What's going to happen? Now they're out of exile, but they're not really out of exile. They're still in exile in their own land. And then the Old Testament ends. Are you serious? Like, it just ends. Like, that's it. You're just left with this awkward tension. Okay, now we have all these two storylines that are both begging for resolution. And so now, through the eyes of the Israel story, the, the smaller one, they're, they're waiting for, I, I can't keep using that. 
You're waiting for a new David. They're waiting for a new Moses. They're waiting for someone who will lead them, this, this messianic, this messiah figure who's going to lead them out of exile. But then you zoom out and you remember the bigger picture and, and, and you realize, wait a second, all of humanity is looking to be led out of exile. We need that snake crusher from page three. These stories are starting to converge because now everybody needs to be led out of exile. We're sort of waiting for that descendant of Abraham who will come through and bless all the nations on earth, bringing them back under the blessing, bringing them back to the manifest presence of God. And all of a sudden, these storylines start to converge on one man. And, and so as you're digging into the story of Israel, you crack that open, and you realize, oh my gosh, there's another story inside, and, and it's this story of, of Jesus of Nazareth, being born. Okay, here's the conditions he was born under. Here's how he lived. Here's what he preached about the kingdom. Here's how he died on a cross. Here's his resurrection. It's another story that's contained within the story. But we find out pretty quickly that Jesus has come to free Israel and all of humanity from its true oppressors. This is the weird tension you get near the end of, well, all of Jesus' life, but especially at the end. Because they say, here he is. Here's the snake crusher. Here's the new David. Here's the new Moses. And what he needs to do is end our exile by killing the Romans. Do you see that in the text, that tension that's there? That's what he's going to do. That's how exile ends. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're caught in the Israel story. You need to zoom out and remember the human story. What is true exile? And, and, and how does exile end? And what are you going back into? They, they'd lost the bigger plot line. And so Jesus is saying, your true enemy is not the Romans. You think it's the Romans, and therefore you're going to be very disappointed when the Romans execute me. But in allowing them to execute me, I'm taking on the true oppressors of humanity. I'm, I'm crushing the head of the serpent. I am freeing you from sin. I am freeing you from Satan. I am freeing you from the Babylon that is this world and its systems and its ways of thinking. I'm freeing you from the brokenness within yourself. This is where exile starts to come undone. If you were to continue to, to crack open these eggs, you'd find in the center of the Jesus story is the cross and the resurrection. This is, this is the story within the story. It's right there in the center. Why is that so important? Because it's where exile starts to come undone. And yet... Even within that, you have this sense of momentum. You have the sense of Jesus is the new Moses. He is the new David. He's crushed the head of the serpent. He's leading this new humanity from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth, and he's leading them out on a new exodus into a new promised land that they will inherit. But the interesting thing is, even in light of all that that's been set in motion, in reality, we are still in exile. And I know this is a lot to take in, so I'm, I'm sorry if you're feeling overwhelmed trying to, to, to grasp all of the layers involved. Though Jesus started something, exile began to unravel, but we are still in exile. So Jesus longs to lead us out of exile, out of the oppressive forces of this world, out of Babylon, and into the garden. This garden-like city that's pictured at the end of Revelation, this eternal place where we're there with the manifest presence of God. It says we don't need sun or moon. It's just the light of God himself flooding that place. And there's the tree of life. We have access to it again. This is, that's the end of exile. And, and so we know that, that it's coming. You see that in the book of Revelation. And in fact, if you read the book, well, 
you should read Revelation at your own risk. It's, it's a little wild. But those of you who have read it recently will know that it actually talks about Babylon. It actually talks about the fall of Babylon. What, what is that? Well, Babylon represents the, the, the evil in, of this world and its systems and its corruption and, and these things that we're stuck in. So you reach the end and Babylon falls. Satan is thrown down and finally and ultimately done away with. All evil is laid to rest. And then everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus comes out of, up from the dead, resurrected, out of exile and back into the promised land, back into the garden as it was intended to be. Jesus guaranteed that future, but it goes without saying that we aren't there yet. Uh, a group of us went to a conference in Montana this last uh, weekend, and we were, my family was driving back late last night, and uh, we got a really late start. It wasn't good. I hadn't finished the teaching. I was like, oh, I got to get home. I got to finish the teaching. And we're driving home. There's this huge accident um, not too far in front of us on the freeway. The whole freeway's blocked. I'm, I'm sure several people died. It was a really bad accident. We're stuck on the freeway, just parked, you know, for an hour. And you're not only are you kind of faced with this reality of, well, there's like death happening, like right, right there. Um, but, but then we like got home really late. We were I, I unloaded our minivan at like 1 a.m. last night. Finally got everything out of the van. I was like, I, I am done. You know, I can't finish the teaching. I'm going to bed. I went to bed. I just woke up. I woke up this morning and I said what I, I, I said what I say most mornings, which is, Lord, not another one. Like, please, like, why does this keep happening to me every single day? Another morning. But I was just exhausted. I woke up feeling sick. Like, my, my throat was just raw. My knees are sore. I'm getting out of bed. Uh, there's mail there left from the weekend that the neighbor brought in. I don't know why, but I thought, oh, I'll just, I just want to open one of these. Traffic ticket, $250 on one of those little cameras. And I thought, why did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> why didn't I just do what normal, I don't know what normal people do, drink coffee or something. And it's just like, oh. And, and then just drag, you know, dragging on and on and had to, even before coming here, like run over and, you know, help a family member with something and, and just feeling exhausted and just thinking like, oh, like what? This is just, oh, like we're in exile. And if you want proof, there's no coffee this morning. For the first time in the history of our church. There is no coffee being served this morning. Just to drive home the point <laughs> that you are not there yet. And, and honestly, some of the examples I'm listing are trivial. Uh, I hope coffee is trivial for you. Maybe it's not. But all of us, um, you know, wake up in the morning, some happy, some sad, but facing the reality of living in exile. And odds are you're facing things that are bigger than traffic tickets depression, lifelong illness, unemployment, struggle, family issues. I have family issues. Actually, you have family issues. And I know you have family issues, not because I'm super prophetic, but because you have a family. <laughs> and therefore, you have family issues. Why? Why do we fail? Why is life so hard? It's because we're living in exile. I mean, I faced all of that stuff before even getting out the door in the morning. And what happens when we get out the door in the morning? We actually walk out into a world that's naturally hostile to King Jesus. That has set itself up in opposition to the kingdom of God. That easily flows and conforms uh, much more easily to the will of Satan than to the will of God, to selfishness, to self-worship, to all of the injustice that flows out of that. We step out the door every morning, coffee or not, traffic tickets or not, we step out into Babylon. 
This is why Peter starts his letters to the church with these words. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, what? Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of all of these places in the Greek world that I won't attempt to pronounce. All, and you know who he's writing to? I always thought, oh, he's probably just writing to the Jewish people who have been scattered by foreign empires. No, he, he's writing to the Gentiles, to us, to the non-Jewish people of the world. Odds are the people who are reading this letter are still in the house they were born in, on the street they're familiar with, in the countries in which they are citizens, and proudly so. What's he say? To the exiles scattered throughout these provinces. If you're opening that letter in the first century, the first thing you're thinking is, he sent it to the wrong church. Honestly, I'm thinking he should have sent that to a Jewish community that has been pushed out of their land. No, no, he, he's, he's writing to you and me. He's writing to people that are completely at home. And he says, no, you're not. You're not at home yet. You are exiles. What's Peter saying? You, me, we, the church, are exiles in this land. And, and he continues. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sexual desires which wage war against your soul. This is, this is his label for followers of Jesus. This is how he ends that same letter. This is, this is his sign-off. He says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. Now, I tune out in the beginning of letters, and I tune out at the end. I, I don't care which friends Peter had and you know, who he's greeting and give a, a holy kiss to so-and-so. Like, I, I, just, I just don't really care. So when I read this, I, I'm, I'm repenting. I'll repent of that. I will. But, but when I read this, I, it goes right over my head. I don't realize what the original readers realize, which is that Babylon has not existed for 500 years. 500 years prior, the Babylonian Empire fell. Wh where are you writing from? Who are these believe it together in Babylon? Send their greetings. Who's in Babylon? According to Peter, all of us. So just two things to remember if you're taking notes as we draw to a close. Uh, and the first is this, really simple. Remember that you are in exile. There is a reason that this world does not feel like home. There's a reason that life feels really hard. There's a reason that, you, that that nagging feeling of emptiness is always there at the corners of your mind, always knocking on the door, fully embraced by many in the secular Western world. We know that something is missing, and we should know in here that the solution is not the next product, and it's not the next politician. The solution is not to embrace cynicism, to shield ourselves from disappointment, as so many have. Realize that it's actually misunderstanding or cowardice that makes us run to cynicism because we, we're so sick of being disappointed in this world. And Peter's saying, no, the solution is to remember that you were made for a better world. This world will never satisfy. We'll always find reasons to disappoint you, but you... Me, we, every human being who draws breath was made for the garden. 
We were made for the kingdom of God. We were made to bask in the manifest presence of God. But this is not the garden. You are a foreigner here. You are an exile here. And no matter who's in office and no matter how much you buy on Amazon, you will remain an exile here. Until at last, this world is remade as Jesus returns. It will be home. It is not home right now. So first, remember that you are in exile. If you forget that, you will set yourself up for incredible frustration and disappointment in this life. And you'll lose sight of your future hope at the same time. You are in exile here. And finally, as we close, I want you to remember that you are not alone. And this is where I want to end. Ezekiel is one of the prophets who actually lived to experience the exile in Babylon. He was there. And God gives him a vision of the presence of the Lord, the manifest presence departing from the temple of God. Which this is, this is a massive deal in their day and in their culture. The temple is the place to house God's manifest presence. The temple is the place where God meets his people and brings blessing on the nation. And, and he has this distinct vision that God shows him uh, of the manifest presence of God lifting up, departing the temple, saying, Two, there's been centuries of idolatry, I'm out. He's departing the temple, but the fascinating thing is that the presence of the Lord departs the temple and it heads east toward Babylon. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting twist. In fact, the book of Ezekiel opens with these words. It says, In my thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River in Babylon, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There, the hand of the Lord was on him. And the vision that, that follows, that, that Ezekiel receives, is that same manifest presence of God. There right there in front of him, by the Kabar River, in the land of the Babylonians. Not in his temple, as one would expect, but with his exiles, with his people, outside a refugee camp on the Kabar River in Babylon. Brothers and sisters, in the eyes of heaven... What is Spokane, and who are we? Spokane is a refugee camp on the edge of a river in the middle of Babylon. That's who we are. That's where we live. I'm not in the habit of, of handwriting letters to other churches. But if I was, I think my sign-off would sound something like this. From the exiles on the edge of the Kabar River in Babylon, who send their greetings. And brothers and sisters, that is good news for two different reasons. The first is that we can rejoice in the fact that what we stand on is not the final product. We are not there yet. We, we have not arrived. This place is not home. It will not be home until it is completely remade, completely cleansed of evil, completely flooded 
with the manifest presence of God. And that's good news, that you're not standing in the final product. That your suffering will end, that all of this is temporary and passing away. Hallelujah for that. And if you want one more piece of good news, it's this. God is with us. Right here, right now, in the middle of exile. On the edge of the Kabar River, in a refugee camp, in the middle of nowhere. The glory of God is in this place. So you see, the, the ultimate solution to our exile is coming. That's the final pages of Revelation. It, it's Jesus resurrecting us from the dead, bringing us into an eternal age with him. That's the ultimate solution for exile. But the temporary solution, the way you live as an exile in a refugee camp, by the side of the river, the temporary solution is not products or politicians. It is the inbreaking kingdom of God. It is the manifest presence of God with you, with us, in this place. The scriptures actually say as we encounter God in this place, as we encounter the Holy Spirit, as we're filled with the Spirit, he says that's actually a, a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Which said a different way, it, it means God's giving you a foretaste of what is to come. Hey, this, this is a little bit of, of what you're going to get in full. But it's, it's breaking in right now. I'm with you next to the river in your exile. The last thing I'll read is, uh, is this. This is from Hebrews uh, chapter 11, and it's all about faith. But I was struck, um, as, as we were praying this morning, I, I just felt led to this passage. Uh, and, and I was just struck by how it kind of captures some of the biblical storyline of exile in, in, in just a paragraph or two. This is um, Hebrews 11, verse 8. It says, By faith, Abraham... When called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and he went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. Isn't that interesting? They did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. No. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the scriptures much of it written or compiled by exiles, led by your Spirit 
to, com com to compile a book written for exiles. And as we come before you this morning, um, Jesus, we actually claim that title as, as exiles and foreigners here because it shows that by faith we're waiting for a better country. It, it shows as we claim that title that we stand in solidarity with the scriptures, with every follower of Jesus throughout history. He said, this is a beautiful place, and we will love this place, and we will serve this place, but, but this is not it. We are not home yet. And so, God, for those of us who maybe are clinging to the wrong things, looking for comfort in the wrong things, attempting to find desperately finality and completeness outside of you in the midst of this age, God, I, I pray for just a sweet and gentle spirit of repentance to, to rest upon those of us who find ourselves there this morning, that we would just begin letting go in the most beautiful, humble way, that we would let go of the things that we've tried to, to make us complete. God, our, our culture, when we were, many of us were, were born here in America, um, but all of us who have taken on the culture of this country have been handed a script that, that says go, buy, purchase, pursue comfort, make yourself complete. And Jesus, this morning, I sense that some of us need to burn that script, um, that we've been reading out of the wrong play, that we've forgotten who we are. So God, I, pr I pray um, that it's your kindness, actually, the scriptures say, that lead us to repentance. I pray that your just kind of spirit of kindness would rest on people they would remember your goodness and, and you would actually draw our eyes just like Abraham, just like Sarah, just like billions since then have claimed the name exile and have looked to the horizon. And I love the way Hebrews says it. It says that we saw those things at a distance and yet welcomed them. As, as if we could see the garden-like city there just beyond reach and, and we were waving it, we were welcoming it as, as our future. We're welcoming it into our hearts. God, I, I pray for those of us who have lost sight of our future hope, that through a revelation of your love, you would solidify that future hope. Speak to them this morning. Remind each one of us where we're headed, that we would welcome the garden-like city, that we would welcome the eternal age, even now, before we step into it. And Jesus, we recognize by some mystery beyond our understanding that as you gave your last breath on the cross, the veil was torn. And, and curiously, um, bits and pieces of the garden-like city, bits and pieces of the glory that is to come, are, are actually spilling into this world, into this age. And so as exiles, we, we come now, God, in humility and in worship, and, and, and we proclaim that your manifest presence is also here with us in this place, in this room, by the edge of a river in a refugee camp. God, you're here. And because of that, because you're not confined to a temple somewhere in the Middle East, because you're here and present with us, all the doors are flung open. Nothing is impossible for you in this place. And so as we worship you now, Jesus, I pray that you would give us the great privilege of beholding your glory, of having that vision like Ezekiel, of having that, that, that realization of Jacob who has a vision of angels ascending and descending from the, the place that he's saying. And he said, I didn't know God was in this place. I thought that was a heaven thing. I thought that was a future thing. And yet you continually shocked your people from the patriarchs, patriarchs forward. They said, I didn't know God was in this place. And I pray, Lord, that as we turn our hearts and minds to you now, that we might have that sense. As, as we sit in the refugee camp by the river, I'm sure, I'm just sure that's what Ezekiel was thinking. As, as you 
opened up the heavens and he saw you manifested there. I, I just, oh gosh, that has to be one of the things that, that popped into his mind. I didn't know God was in this place. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would have your way here among us, and that you would reveal yourself to us, your exiles waiting in hope for the land that we'll inherit. In Jesus' name, amen.